when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Rishi Sunak delivered his autumn budget this week, where he significantly ramped up public spending while conversely arguing he is still a fiscal conservative. Do we want to live in a country where the response to every question is what is the government going to do about it? Where every time prices rise, every time a company gets in trouble, every time some new challenge emerges, the answer is always the taxpayer must pay. Or do we choose to recognise that government has limits? Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be examining the philosophy behind this year's budget, whether this was a marked change in how the Conservatives look and run the economy. Was Rishi Sunak returning to Keynesianism, embracing Hayek, or trying to do both at the same time? And can such an approach hold? Political editor George Parker and chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will discuss. And later, we'll be looking ahead to the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, where world leaders will, or won't, step up to the challenge of tackling climate change. Will Boris Johnson's bold ambitions be met, or will it turn out to be another missed opportunity? Climate reporter Camilla Hodgson and our columnist Polita Clark will explain. George and Robert, welcome back. Morning, Seb. Hi, Seb. So how was the budget experience for both of you? This was our first sort of in-person budget for some time, George, given the pandemic. And we were there cheek by jowl in the press gallery for the huddle afterwards and within the chamber. And we did see plenty of Tory MPs wearing masks after Sajid Javid remarked last week that they maybe should do so. And I noticed that the Prime Minister donned a mask after Prime Minister's questions when I think some were eyeing the fact he wasn't wearing one before. Yeah, we were all spotting who was wearing masks and who weren't. It's obviously part of a sort of big cultural identifier inside the Conservative Party. Notice that during Prime Minister's question time, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Liz Truss were the two freedom-loving mask rebels. And then by the time the budget came along, I think it was just Jacob Rees-Mogg who wasn't wearing one. And Robert, I think you were watching the budget in the FT's newsroom at Bracken House and someone else was there was saying to me it was the busiest they'd seen it literally in years. And there was even a run on tea mugs. Yeah, I don't know about years, but certainly since the pandemic hit. It, I mean, it's, it's a very good place to be on Budget Day, the FT Newsroom, because it's full of all of our experts you know, microanalyzing all the different um, aspects of the budget. And you get a sense of it, the, the, the feel of it as, as it goes along. You know, our economics editor, Chris Charles, is a brilliant man, does an almost impromptu sort of IFS briefing immediately after the Chancellor sit down, has sat down where he goes through the books and says, this is what he said, this is what he meant, this is what really happened. And so it, 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 it's a very lively and interesting place place to watch the budget. And I should say, we recorded a mini budget day podcast with Chris Giles. So if you would like his view on the specifics of the budget, then if you go back to your podcast feed, you can find it there. But let's dive into our main discussion of the week. Rishi Sunak's budget this week was a slightly mind-boggling affair. 
The Chancellor began by announcing huge spending pledges, £150 billion in day-to-day spending for Whitehall, billions for regional transport. It amounted to an apparent change in how the Tories viewed the role of the British state. And then later on, he essentially cut taxes through the universal credit benefits and promised to do more in the future. So what does Sunak really believe? And is he serious about this pledge of cutting taxes or was this just a fop to keep Conservative MPs happy? Simon Clark, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury, insisted that tax cuts were still a priority. Where there are chances, as the economy recovers, to cut taxes, as we've shown through our action on business rates today and as we've shown through universal credit taper relief as well, we will do that. And I suspect that over the course of budgets to come between now and the next election, as the Chancellor hinted, we will look to ease the burden of taxation on the public. But George, the budget's now settled for a couple of days, which is normally a good time to say, was this a success or not? Because if it was going to unravel, we would have seen it by now. And it doesn't feel like it has been a failure. No, I mean, it wasn't one of these budgets where you look through the, the red book and think, aha, there's a disaster there waiting to happen for the government immediately. I mean, not in the way that, for example, Philip Hammond's uh, increase in national insurance contributions or George Osborne's pasty tax. But I mean, there are plenty of potential seeds of problems in the budget, which I think will become apparent if they do become apparent later on down the track. But I think it certainly caused a certain amount of nervousness among Conservative MPs, particularly when they woke up the next day to newspaper headlines saying things like, hey, big spender, spending spree. And I think that's made a lot of Conservative MPs rather anxious. And then we had the economic analysis done where the Resolution Foundation concluded that by the end of this parliament, every household would be paying the equivalence of £3,000 a year more in taxation than they were at the start of Boris Johnson's premiership. So there's a lot riding on Rishi Sunak's calculation that the country is still in favour of a big state approach to the country's economic problems and won't at some point start chafing against those higher taxes and, of course, many of the higher prices coming down the track as well through higher inflation. Well, Robert, when you look at that kind of the response to the budget within the chamber, that there were some points so you could hear where MPs were doing a good call and response with Rishi Sudak. But as he rattled through all the, the spending commitments, and I mentioned some of them at the top there, you could feel, and some Tory MPs I've spoken to this week have said to me, this is not really why I came into politics, that ever since the days of Margaret Thatcher, Tories believe in having a smaller state that's focused on lower taxation. And that's really not quite what he was trying to do here. And the question is, is he doing it because of the pandemic, because of this sort of build back better philosophy? Is he doing this because of the Red Wall? Or is he doing this to try and cause big problems for the Labour Party? Well, of course, the answer to that question is is all three. And there's no doubt that the Conservatives were re-elected in 2019 on a promise to spend more and quite specifically to undo some of the damage that was felt to have been done both politically and societally by the years of austerity. And one of the striking things about this budget were all the bits of Osbornism that were unwound. I mean, there was a big increase in spending in education and taking the amount, the payment, the amount you spend per pupil back up to the levels it was in 2010. So there was an awful lot of spending going on there. Then obviously you had the huge costs of the pandemic and the backlog and the debt that's been built up and the borrowing that has gone on to take the country through the pandemic and a reasonable concern for a Conservative Chancellor that he's got to get the books in better shape. And then on top of that, you have the promise of tax cuts down the line. And and I think every Conservative MP expects that he is going to have to cut taxes considerably before the next election. But I think the, the big question for me out of all of it is he spent a lot of money and there was much of that spending that I think people will welcome. 
And he has financed a chunk of that spending through tax rises. And if you're fiscally conservative, you have to fund it through taxes rather than borrowing. But at the end of this period, after all these headlines of, hey, big spender, are people in the country actually going to feel much better off? Are they going to notice their services significantly improved? And I think if I were a Conservative MP, my worry would be that people are going to notice in their pay packet that they're not better off. They're going to see the inflation in the shops and they're going to still see services quite heavily stretched. And they could find themselves heading into an, an election where the opposition is saying, well, we actually really need to spend to sort the country out. And if the if we head into an election where the issue is the state of the country and the state of services rather than the levels of taxation, then they've got a problem. And I think that's the thing, George, when you look at this budget, that a lot of the longer term investment goes into the government's levelling up agenda to tackle regional inequality. But the immediate crunch is going to be the cost of living this winter. And I think, you know, if you look at this budget, there is an argument that there necessarily wasn't a huge amount in there that's going to help with that, that you reported there were some discussions about maybe chopping VAT off energy bills. That's the kind of very palpable thing that could have been done. And I think when Rishi Sunak was asked about this in the the broadcast rounds post the budget, he said, you know, this is not just a UK problem. All these supply chain issues are facing countries all across the world. And I would fix them if I could, but I necessarily can't. I think you're absolutely right that the, the cost of living issue is the thing that's going to be causing the government most problems over the next few months. And there wasn't very much in, in the budget for, for people struggling through. There was the £2 billion extra put into the universal credit system. But of course, that only helped those people who are in receipt of universal credit and in work, not the majority of people who've recently lost that temporary uplift in universal credit. There seemed to be an awful lot of scratching around trying to find ways to show that he could cut taxes thanks to Brexit. And as you say, he rejected the idea of cutting VAT on fuel, which he could have presented as some sort of Brexit freedom, instead of which he cut taxes on alcohol and on domestic flights. So it was a budget for boozers and people who like flying, you know, just ahead of a climate change summit. So there wasn't very much to help people through a cost of living crisis. And I think Robert put his finger on it. The problem is that people are going to feel a lot worse off because of the, of the rising inflation set to be around 4% this year. And of course, the tax rise is coming down the track. The Chancellor this year, this is from the Office of Budget Responsibility Report, has noted that he put up taxes more this year than any other chancellors since Norman Lamont and Ken Clark had two budgets in 1993. Tax rises of about £50 billion. And people are going to feel worse off. As Robert says, they're going to be looking around to see whether things are working better, whether the hospital waiting lists are coming down. And if they're not, I think there'll be quite a heavy political price for Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak to pay. And I think when you look at Labour's response to the budget, you know, they are clearly struggling with this kind of philosophy that Rachel Reeves, who had to step in at the last moment because Kistarmer was tested positive with COVID-19, essentially tried to say that, well, the Tories have run the economy for the last decade, so it's their fault. Time and again today, the Chancellor compared the investments that he is making to the last decade. Yeah, yeah. But who was in charge? Yeah. Who was in charge in this last decade? They were. But people are getting warm, wise to them. Every month they feel the pinch. They're tired of the smoke and mirrors. They're tired of the bluster, of the false dawns, of the promises of jam tomorrow.
And I think, Robert, that speaks to the, the question of how much of this people are actually going to feel both now and by the next election. And these investments obviously are part of the post-COVID world and the Build Back Better slogan. But it's also a thing of, you know, the levelling up agenda is the thing that Boris Johnson's government is resting on. That's how they hope to win the next election. They allocated £1.7 billion to small infrastructure projects across the country, which will all be built in the next four years. So there is some tangible stuff there. But I do wonder if the macroeconomic picture is starting to look quite dicey with cost of living, with inflation, with interest rates, people might not be so bothered about a new sports hall or shopping centre. Um, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think Rachel Rees put up a game performance. But the truth is, although what she says is right, that the Conservatives have been in power for the last decade, this government has successfully defined itself in opposition to its own predecessors. And Boris Johnson has persuaded the public that this is a very different Conservative government, which in fairness, it is to some extent. So I think Labour has a problem here because the country is convinced that Boris Johnson was the antidote to the previous nine years of Conservative rule. As far as levelling up goes, I think the broader macroeconomic picture that you raise is an important one. But the one thing that we haven't discussed is growth levels, because actually, when you looked at the budget forecasts, we have you know a couple of years where the economy bounces back from the pandemic, gets back to where it was, and then growth becomes really, really very anemic. You know, I think it's one point three, one point seven. These are very, very low numbers for a country that's now spending a lot more and promising to do more with its services. And at some point, if you want to cut taxes, you're going to have to find other ways to fund that spending and the conservative gamblers, you can fund it through increased growth. And as as far as the levelling up project goes, again, there's a lot in what what they were doing, which I think many people will applaud. There's lots to be said for improving transport links and infrastructure links and improving town centres. But I think one of the problems that they might run up against is a lot of the work that's going on has a sort of superficial air to it, improving the centre of towns, high streets and so on, you know, upgrading stations. These are all good things to do. But in the end, what brings real prosperity to any part of the country is jobs and business. And that's what actually they really need to bring to the country. And I think they're doing some of the some good things about that. But the question is whether they are doing enough fast enough for it to begin to, to feed through and whether people will begin to start asking, well, where is this levelling up that you promised us? I, I suspect they've got two terms to convince people on this. But it is a question people are going to start asking when they start feeling the pinch in other ways. And I think, George, that it's that more structural problem that Rishi Sunak has been criticised for by the IFS think tank this week that they've said that does this really hang together as a strategy for tackling these issues? And the fact is we're on course, I think, for almost a decade, if not a lot more than that, of stagnant wage growth. This productivity question has still not really been addressed. And as Robert said, if you're still getting these very low levels of growth, then that's going to really box Rishi Sunak in in terms of what he can do in the future, even though at the moment, I think he's got a decent amount of fiscal headroom. Well, he has. He was a fortunate chancellor in the, in the respect that the OBR gave him a report because he went into the chamber or a few days, obviously, before he went into the chamber, giving him this so-called windfall of £35 billion. And he'll say, well, he earned that windfall by running the economy effectively through the pandemic. But nevertheless, there was that money there. He's put aside about £25 billion in the last year of the parliament below what he needs to meet his new fiscal rules to balance day-to-day spending by 24-25 and to bring debt on a downward path. But the question is, as Robert was alluding to earlier, what do you do at the next election when he's basically promised, he went to the 1922 backbench committee straight after the budget and say, look, if we've got any money left lying around in future, it's going to be devoted to tax cuts. Well, what happens if we get into the election and the health service is still under pressure and the 
prime minister next door is knocking on the door and saying we should be spending more on public services. That's when I think problems really start to arise for, for this government. And in terms of whether he did enough in this budget to raise productivity and then raise, sort of meet the objective of having a higher skill, higher wage, higher productivity economy. Well, just one thing to pick out there was that the government has a manifesto commitment to spend £22 billion on research and development by the end of this parliament, 24, 25. Well, they cut £2 billion off that. And you could argue that was probably the single most important thing in terms of raising the country's productivity, which the Chancellor somehow made sound like some sort of triumph in his uh, speech and no one really noticed it. But that was quite, quite an important factor to, to note. And finally, Robert, how much do you think this budget was Rishi Sunak's budget versus Boris Johnson's? Because you could sort of see the two different sides of that. And there was a column in The Times on Friday morning by James Forsyth, who um, has known Rishi Sunak for 20 years and makes the point that, you know, the kind of traditional Tory economics are what really drive him in terms of the role of the state, in terms of encouraging business, in terms of encouraging enterprise. But at the same time, you've got all this spending and you have to wonder how comfortable the Chancellor is with all of the stuff he announced? Well, I mean, I think you only have to look at the, the summing up of his speech to know how uncomfortable he was. I mean, this was a sort of, they made me do this budget, where he bellowed at the end how uncomfortable he was about how much he was spending and how much he was taxing, in spite of the fact that he didn't actually have to be taxing as heavily as he was, as George talked about the, the level of headroom that he's got in his budget. He could have started to roll back some of the tax rises now. The, the, the freezing of income tax thresholds, is going to hit people and drag people into the tax system into being higher rate taxpayers. I think I think from memory that, that the freezing of the income tax allowances over three years will pull an extra million people into paying income tax and an extra 1.3 million people will pull from being ordinary rate taxpayers to higher rate taxpayers. So he had the opportunity to unpick some of that if he wanted to, but he chose not to. And he's using tax cuts as a way of controlling spending and controlling the spending urges of the prime minister. My own sense of this is that this was Rishi Sunak's budget in the sense that he has persuaded Boris Johnson to give him the time to make it right, to get the spending that the prime minister wants and then get taxes back under control. And I think he's attempted to draw a line in the sand and say, but this is it. This is as far as it goes. And it probably is all things with, with fair weather as far as it needs to go. But you can sense his immediate discomfort. You can sense his political discomfort within his own party as someone who aspires to lead it one day at being pegged as a high tax Chancellor, you know, he's, the, the Prime Minister promoted uh, Liz Truss to Foreign Secretary in the reshuffle, and a lot of people think he was deliberately trying to build up a rival to Rishi Sunak. And um, Liz Truss has a way of letting it be known that she didn't want to support higher taxes while actually doing so in Cabinet in the end. So he's very conscious of the flank to his right, which he also symp sympathises with himself. But he's on a spot here because a lot of the party is going to get used to higher spending. They didn't like austerity. And so whatever his personal emotions, he, he may find this a harder hook to get off than he would like. George and Robert, thank you very much. Well, for part two of the programme, I'm now moved to our Westminster office. But all the action this week is in Glasgow, where the COP26 Climate Summit is finally here. After years of preparation, over 120 world leaders will gather this weekend to take stock of their commitments on keeping temperature rises to 1.5 degrees. But as with all these international summits, it does risk becoming another talking shop. But for Boris Johnson, the stakes are high. He really has talked up what can be achieved in Glasgow to the chagrin of some ministers within his government. Last month, he told the UN General Assembly that the world's transition towards a more green economy would be easy. And when Kermit the Frog, Kermit the Frog, 
sang. It's not easy being green. You remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative and it's right to be green. But then this week, Boris Johnson told a Downing Street press conference of children that the COP26 summit might not go to plan. We need to, as many people as possible to agree to go to net zero so that they're, they're not producing too much carbon dioxide by, by the middle of the, of the century. Now, I think it can be done. It's going to be very, very tough, this summit. And I'm very worried because it, it, might, go, it might go wrong. And we might not get the agreements that we need. Well, Camilla Hodgson, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining. Let's begin with just what COP is about. This is organised by the United Nations. But what does this gathering hope to achieve? Is it about money, targets or plan? Or is it really just all about rhetoric? So this year's COP is a big deal, um, as we've heard. It's really been billed by the Prime Minister as a kind of a moment for the world. It stands for a conference of the parties and it's a meeting of all the nations in the world that signed up to the UN's Convention on Climate Change. And that's a treaty from 1994. The purpose of COPS is really to limit global warming. And the Paris Agreement from 2016 said that countries would strive for limiting warming to well below two degrees. More recently, the goal has shifted to 1.5 degrees. So this COP really is a moment where countries around the world will gather in Glasgow, they'll talk about emissions reduction plans, there's a lot of momentum to get countries to make theirs more ambitious, there'll be discussions about how countries report their emissions, other kind of technical details that are unresolved. Well, Polita Clark, it's also great to have you with us. Now, some of this has been painted by the Prime Minister as the last chance to save the planet from um, a disastrous increase in temperatures that would have a catastrophic effect. Is that hyperbole or do you think that's correct? Actually, previous COPs um, have had very much the same thing said about them, particularly the 2015 Paris COP that delivered the Paris Accord. The big thing that has changed, though, and the reason that there's so much focus and attention and concern about this COP is that in 2015 in Paris, the agreement that was produced, basically after a lot of wrangling, it was agreed that the pledges that countries put forward for that that Paris agreement would be improved and updated in five years. And at the same time, it was agreed that scientists would go away and look at what the world would look like with 1.5 degrees of warming. In the intervening five years, the scientists have come back and said, look, we can't really be talking about some sort of vague deadline sometime this century to cut emissions. If we're really serious about meeting the 1.5 degree target, emissions have to nearly halve by 2030 and then come down to net zero by 2050. And so that has sort of added a whole layer of urgency because it's crystallised what was previously a pretty vague and fuzzy set of ideas about how fast emissions needed to be cut. And so here we are in Glasgow in 2021, a year later, because the pandemic meant that last year's COP had to be cancelled or deferred for a year. So here we are in 2021. Countries are supposed to be coming up with these new and improved targets or plans, rather. And at the same time, the scientists have 
made it clearer than ever how much better those plans have to be. And so that's why this is a really critical COP. It feels, Camilla, as if this is a very much a filling in the details summit. It's not like Paris where you set this big overarching target. It's much more about the specific details on how we're actually going to get there. And of course, Boris Johnson wants to say the UK is further ahead than other countries. They set out this plan a couple of weeks ago, which itself was still quite vague and didn't include many hard numbers to it about how the UK would get to net zero. What is going to be the atmosphere beyond the UK? I think the atmosphere going into the summit is mixed. People, on the one hand, are heartened by the fact that we really have seen over the last year or so a lot more enthusiasm for climate-related changes, concerns really growing not only among politicians but business leaders, civil society. There does seem to be an awakening almost among lots of people all over the world. And I think that's given some confidence that this won't just be a talking shop, that people are serious about wanting to make changes and, you know, setting the world on the right track. I think on the other hand, a lot of these details are technical. They are things that were not resolved at previous COPs. Madrid, which was the the last one in 2019, was deemed a bit of a failure because really the details that the negotiators had hoped to work out didn't get worked out. And that's why there are so many things left unresolved that need fixing this year. So I think people are conscious that there is a lot to do, perhaps cautiously optimistic in some camps at least. And I think the the kind of outstanding issue that has created a lot of doubt in people's minds is this question of climate finance and this promise that developed countries made to developing countries to commit 100 billion a year by 2020. And that money was meant to go towards supporting developing countries to transition to cleaner economies, but also to help deal with the fallout from natural disasters. And just this week, there was a report from the world's rich nations saying, I'm sorry, we failed to do this and saying, we'll get there, but it's not going to be until 2023. Now, the issue with this, of course, Polita, is that two major countries aren't going to be attending, that China will not be president and nor will Russia. And I think in many ways, this might speak to that change in rhetoric. You saw, we've heard from Boris Johnson at the top of the segment there, because China is a, such a key part of trying to hit that 1.5 degree target for climate change. And I think Boris Johnson spoke to President Xi on Friday afternoon, but it doesn't really feel as if much is budging on that front. So, you know, without those players, is there any way that COP can still be a success? Yeah, well, that is a really good question. There's been a lot of discussion about the idea that it doesn't really matter if she is not coming because, you know, he hasn't gone to a lot of other events and really we just should be measuring China on the basis of what they're actually going to announce. And unfortunately, in both the cases of China and Russia, you know, what's being announced is really not what's needed to put the world on to the pathway towards one point or to make sure it doesn't actually reach 1.5 degrees of warming. So it is a real problem. I I just would say, though, that we have to remember that, you know, this is a negotiation. COPs are a great, big, enormous, almost, you know, it's very difficult to even explain what what a ridiculously large negotiation they are. But, you know, we are at a situation at a stage where, as Camilla has just said, 
the money's not coming from wealthy countries. And so China in particular, which is, acts as a sort of a, a standard bearer for, or has in the past at COPs acted as a sort of a, something of a standard bearer for less developed countries. China is basically saying, well, you know, this is what we're doing at this stage of, of uh, proceedings. It, it is difficult to see that they are going to shift their stance. I'm not trying to suggest that um, something miraculous might emerge on the weekend or as COP starts. But nonetheless, we do have to bear in mind at all times that this is a negotiation and the end of a COP often looks incredibly different to the beginning of one. And even before the Paris one started in 2015, when it seemed as though the US and China, whose relations, of course, um, are much frostier now than they were before that agreement was uh, signed. But even before that COP, there, were a, there was a lot of concern that it wasn't actually going to be able to pull off the Paris Agreement. And there was a huge amount of wrangling during the negotiations. So I just think, you know, it's just too early to tell exactly what we're going to see at the end of the two weeks. Camilla, what do you think about the role of President Biden in this as well? Because obviously he came into office with a very different approach towards climate change and has been involved in the Build Back Better for the World project that was announced at the G7 combined with Boris Johnson. And again, with the Prime Minister having a central role to this, you can imagine he's going to want to A, buddy up with the President, but B, also extract as much money as possible. Because that's the other element that you hinted at earlier is that, yes, it's about plans and targets, but fundamentally, it's about putting forward big sums of money to help the developing world. What's your view on what's likely to come out on that issue? Yeah, I think Biden will have a a big role to play here. On the one hand, countries are somewhat sceptical, perhaps, of taking the US at face value and taking Biden at his word and saying, you know, this is the end of the Trump era, where the US is back, we're here to take climate seriously. I think people would like to see kind of the proof in the pudding before just accepting that but on the other hand, they are, you know, they're political heavyweights. It's obviously very significant to have them back. And people are hopeful that Biden will be able to wield his diplomatic clout to convince other countries to either be it stump up money, be it come to agreements on, you know, the wording of certain texts, be it upgrade climate plans and make them more ambitious. I think there are hopes that having him there will make a difference. The US did already this year double or announced that it would double the amount that it's giving in climate finance. And that's the money that goes to developing countries. So I don't know whether it's realistic to expect them to go beyond that. That's already something that will have to be approved by Congress. So it's kind of not set in stone yet. The other sort of thorn in Biden's side is whether or not he'll be able to get his various domestic climate plans through Congress. He's obviously planning to spend a lot of money at home, but whether he is able to actually put that into practice is a bit of a question mark. And that does somewhat harm his credibility on the international stage, I think. And finally, Polita, um, that point again, as I saw this tension that Boris Johnson was sort of saying that it's easy going green, but then also this might not be a success. For the Prime Minister, what do you think he wants to get out of this for this and to go and say, you know, look, this is a success of global Britain and its convening role that we're leading the world with our first plan to achieve net zero and look, everyone else is following in our wake. What sort of things could come out of it that would meet that general ambition Downing Street has? Well, there's a number of things, actually. And I think the UK has been quite daring in a a way because 
they have really pushed for what a number of people who've been involved in these negotiations for years and years, if not decades, have said needs to be done at these COPs. They're saying, look, instead of, you know, just trying to forge these big agreements, which like the Paris Agreement, we need to move on and actually make these meetings a moment where countries agree to take very concrete, tangible action that's required to really cut emissions, not just agree to agree to agree sometime in the future. And so the UK has been pushing to try to get agreement amongst the largest emitters for a deadline for phasing out coal. And there's been some success in that in a way, because China has at least said that it's going to stop supporting international coal projects. And of course, the really big prize is getting China and the other big coal users to say they'll stop using it domestically. So far, it doesn't look as though there's going to be much agreement on that. It's hard to see that there's going to be a significant deal. But the UK is doing the right thing. So I think for Boris Johnson, what he really needs at the end of COP is a series of agreements on these really tough, hard issues like phasing out coal, phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, boosting electric cars, curbing deforestation, all of these kind of deals that are not really part of the technical negotiations um, at the innermost circle of the COP itself, but are really being pushed for by the UK. That's what I think will really be quite important for the UK government and for Mr Johnson. Well, we'll come back and look at that next weekend, I think, after the leaders' part of COP is over. Camilla and Polita, thank you so much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, you name it, to receive episodes when they're released. And if you're having a jolly weekend, then why not leave us a jolly review or jolly rating to go with it? Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sean McGarrity. Until next time, thanks for listening. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.